family is all that lives in sight and sound, touch and taste. Live, come on, be human and give, give, give. <laughs> the Woodstock Roundtable welcomes you to be a part of being human. Aho! Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Woodstock Roundtable. Doug Grunthe, your host, looking forward to two hours of conversational improvisation and some rather trippy material this morning. Um, you ready for some mind-expanding trips? Are you ready for uh, a past life regression, perhaps? We'll talk with Gloria DiPietro, author of a new book, A Soul's Journey, the story of traveling through time to find the truth and i'll have lots to say about it because she took me on a trip we'll report and uh, we'll look into two articles from wired magazine one is on the open source movement uh, if you're not familiar with that it's why the World Wide web is a good thing it's a bad thing for a lot of reasons but open source is one of the reasons it's a good thing so we'll talk about that and another article is the internet conscious? Well, not yet, but uh, not so sure about the future. We'll hear music from the Sultan of Sonic Soul, Gus Mancini. Street philosophy will bring us back down to earth with Patrick Carlin. And we'll open up the Woodstock Roundtable jukebox because we can. And joining us will be co-host and operator of HAL, on-air weekend warrior here at Radio Woodstock, Ron Van Warmer. We promise you it'll be unpredictable. Some surprises. So fasten your seatbelt. Inject yourself with whatever gets you motivated in the morning. Join us for the Woodstock Roundtable. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. Good morning, Ron. Good morning, Doug. You got here early enough to see the full moon oh, this morning. I saw it last night. Ah. I was in it. Ah. I just, uh, my, uh, uh, I play a lot of golf because that's my exercise. Uh -huh. And I just get as much thrill as just hitting the balls and walking around <laughs> as I do actually playing the course. Yeah. Uh, and the course that I play is closing its greens this weekend so ah. i'm gonna get my last licks and so i friend and i played late yesterday and i said i'm not going home it was almost <laughs> dark but it was fairly warm right yeah and the, when i got to the fourth hole i was playing it, there was no sun left but the moon was so bright mm. i could i could play a few more and it was just so trippy just to play <laughs> in the moonlight you need a, a glow in the dark ball they have those. Do they? Yeah. But yeah. that's no fun. It's more fun <laughs> hitting it and trying to find it. But um, so literally just walking around in, in the moonlight is, uh, we know why a lot of fiction gets written about you yeah. know, werewolves and yeah. and uh, why the moon is, is referred to as feminine, kind of uh -huh. in the Jungian psychology sense of um, uh, interesting. And what's so interesting about the moon is that it doesn't, it doesn't give off its own light. It doesn't give right. off any light. It reflects the light of the sun, 
which is an interesting position to be in. Mm. You know, we we like to think because we live in a culture that is very ego driven for good and for bad, very self determinant for good and for bad. Mm-hmm. Right? We're a pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, Puritan ethic, Protestant ethic, <laughs> which worked. Very well for a while. It, it, it creates a lot of good technology, uh-huh. a lot of wealth. Now it's eating its young, mm-hmm. <laughs> as we're watching. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, half this country, you say the word socialism, oh. and they literally start shaking. But they're not, I don't see the, uh, the elder people who are against socialism, I don't see them uh, tearing up their social security checks when they arrive. Mm, I don't see people not driving on the uh, socialist highways around America. <laughs> That's right, built by taxpayer money. Uh-huh. So at any rate, um, uh, yes, contradictions persist on both sides of, the, uh, of every aisle. Um, but um, uh, the idea of reflecting light as opposed to generating it it's why the masculine has been, you know, dominant in Western yeah. cultures for centuries and to both our uh, reward and detriment. And um, time for a shift. Yeah. And shift is happening. Oh, it is. And uh, <laughs> I will be possibly today, but definitely next week, starting to talk about a new project. I'm going to corral you into it. Uh-huh. Um, that will be in addition to this program. This program will continue the way it is because uh, it's too much fun not to. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but uh, for those interested in kind of right hemisphere, brain, uh, mind, shift, what the deep patterns are, we'll be creating a, a, a new project that you might find interesting. Yeah. Uh, but for, for today, um, because this is so much of what we do is based on improvisation, um, and as I was walking into the studio late as usual here this morning, uh, Supertramp was playing, the logical song, right? Right. I was always taken by that. It, I think it was released in 1979. Um, I was not a Supertramp fan necessarily, but that song always got me for two reasons. One, the lyrics, uh-huh. which are very... I feel right hemisphere kind of interesting for rock and roll lyrics and B and it's some interesting sounds. So because we now live in the age of the World Wide web, I was able within seconds <laughs> to wiki the song and it turns out there's some it, it's a kind of an unusual song. Um, hey Google the logical song wiki. Um, some interesting instrumentation, including a video game at the time. Uh, the yeah. sound of a video game. So it's a song by the English group Supertramp. It was released in 1979. The album was Breakfast in America, written primarily by the band's Roger Hodgson, who's the lead singer, who has a two-octave range, mm. as you hear in the song. The song became their biggest hit, rising to number seven in the UK, number six in the US. Um, some interesting... Things about the composition. Um, let's see here. Um, written in C minor. Hmm. D minor is my favorite chord, but C minor is close <laughs> second. Um, they use keyboards, castanets, an instrumental section, and among the contemporary sound effects in the song are the, they use the word tackled sound. I've never heard of that. Oh, I know what it is because it's from a football game. The tackled sound 
from a Mattel electronic football game, which is popular at the time. Huh. So you pull up Super Tramp. Yeah. Now, before we get to the music, I want to talk about the lyrics because I always found them intriguing. And it turns out that Hodgson was based it on his experience at boarding school. Um, so here are the lyrics. When I was young, it seemed that life was so wonderful. A miracle. It was beautiful, magical, and all the birds, and you know where this is going. It ain't going <laughs> to stay this way, right? Joyfully, playfully, then they send me away to teach me how to be sensible. Ah. <laughs> Sounds like most of our school experiences. Uh-huh. Uh, logical, responsible, practical, and they showed me a world where I could be so dependable, clinical, intellectual, cynical. Mm. Good lyrics. Yeah. There are times when all, then they go to a, I guess it's a bridge. There are times when all the world's asleep, the questions run too deep. For such a simple man, won't you please tell me what we've learned? I know it sounds absurd, but Please tell me who I am. <laughs> Way to go. Yeah. yeah. They don't teach you that in boarding school. Yeah. By the way, they didn't teach us that in my public school either. That time you became a rock and roll. Takes rock and roll to free you up. So then they continues. I said, watch what you say, or they'll be calling you a radical, liberal, or fanatical, criminal. Won't you sign up your name? We'd... Like to feel you're acceptable, <laughs> respectable, oh, presentable. Mm. And then you get uh, some of the Mattel's electronic football game in there. <laughs> kind tackle. of a cool, I think, very innovative um, song, you know, that asks the question that whether we're conscious of it or not, both illuminates our lives and freaks us out at the same yeah. time, which is who the heck are we? <laughs> And that question is going to become more important as shift happens, as, and listen, a lot of us can feel it. Look, the, I was thinking about this. Things take, we, we, we're, we get obsessed with, with the current rage, which is coronavirus, which mm-hmm. is a big deal. Um, <clears throat> for the first time, the entire world locked down. Yeah. Uh, the consequences of that, we're not going to know all of it for a while, but you can start to see that's pretty devastating. Uh, and um, it's going to change a lot of things that are not going to come back. But this movement, this this huge change, these, sh- these seismic shifts were happening before COVID showed up. So let's just think about this new century we're in. First of all, remember when we were headed towards the new millennium, which is a big deal. We got the advantage, um, <clears throat> baby boomers and millennials, and very young Generation Z's uh-huh. um, got a huge advantage, which is to live through a millennium shift, mm-hmm. not just a hundred-year cycle, which is pretty c- c- cool—a century shift, but a thousand-year cycle. Yeah, right. The previous millennium before two thousand that we went through was the year one thousand. Yeah. <laughs> a little different. Yeah, yeah, a little. <clears throat> A lot, of, a lot of change in a thousand years. You know, instead of a computer, you were lucky if you had a crossbow. Exactly. So, and if you remember Y2K? Yeah. The world was freaking out because we were told by computer experts that we're not sure computers are going to be able to handle... <laughs> that shift. The shift numerically uh-huh. to a new millennium, and everything could shut down. Yeah. 
Now, fortunately, nothing did. <clears throat> but we're now 20 years into a new millennium. On one level, 20 years is a, is a, is a blip in the screen. 20 years out of 1,000 is not a lot. Uh-huh. But there's a difference. We are moving at a speed never before experienced by human beings. Um, and while <clears throat> I understand why everyone's focused and obsessed with the coronavirus, um, the fact is that the biggest influence in our lives is the exponentially increasing computer intelligence yeah. for good and for bad, depending upon how we use it. It's neutral. It's how we use it. Right. Um, but whether we succeed or fail as a species in terms of our relationship with artificial intelligence, the fact of the matter is it's speeding everything up. It's connecting us in ways never before were possible. So, for example, let's look at the main events of just this millennium we're in, this, this century. Okay, fortunately, year 2000, we didn't have the Y2K no. fiasco. But about a year later, something unforeseen and unimaginable happened. Perhaps the greatest symbol of American economic power was destroyed yeah. by planes being driven into them. Uh, followed by, connected to, an invasion of Iraq based on lies. Mm-hmm. And a, it was supposed to be a quick war. We're still there. Yeah, People are still suffering from it. 20 years. 20 years later. Um, well, or ni- 19 years 19. later. <clears throat> and uh, we invaded actually the... the World Towers went down 9-11-2001, and the invasion of Iraq was in 2003. Then we had the wonderful 2008 collapse of the whole (laughs) mortgage industry because of the pure greed of banks. Uh The entire world shook. Um, It took taxpayers' money to bail out General Motors. When we were baby boomers were growing up, General Motors was the U.S. economy. It was the symbol of the strength of the most powerful economy ever created, U.S. capitalism. General Motors would have gone under (laughs) if uh, socialism didn't work and the taxpayers didn't bail them out. The government didn't bail them out with our tax money, I should say. And that's what I love about conservatives. They hate socialism except for corporations. Right. So... um, (laughs) <laughs> Don't get me started on liberals because I, I can't stand them right now either because they're they're just scolding everybody all the time. But um, <clears throat> uh, so we have fortunately no Y two K. We have the World Trade Centers going down. We have the invasion of Iraq, which with dozens of countries joining us in that devastation. Yeah. Then the two thousand eight mortgage collapse. Now. Then, 2016, forget about whether you hate him or love him. <laughs> the fact is, a guy becomes president, not only did he have no political experience, he was best well known for what? TV. For being a TV reality show host. Exactly. This is something you only see in fiction. Yeah. You're right. Um, <clears throat> and Arnold Schwarzenegger was governor of California. 
But Ronald Reagan was president. Okay, but Reagan <laughs> Reagan had been governor of California. Right. Schwarzenegger, interesting case. Why is someone calling me? All right. Well, at any rate, um, <laughs> um, uh, Schwarzenegger was not a bad governor. No, not terrible. Um, <clears throat> and, but um, <clears throat> not a TV reality host. At any rate. <clears throat> he did that later. Yeah. He took over Trump's right place. <clears throat> <laughs> So anyway, I, I'm walking in here ready to do something else, but I hear the logical song by Supertramp, and I just felt it was relevant for today. Uh-huh. So let's play it. All right. Uh, we talked about the lyrics, kind of interesting, and it's a lot of interesting sounds here, including the sound of the popular, I don't remember it, the popular Mattel yeah. electronic football game. We'll see if we can hear that. And use that as kind of a springboard for our discussion about open source and why it's important. Here we go. Same. 
some early Woodstock Roundtable jukebox, but inspired <laughs> by Radio Woodstock playing this song right before we went yeah. on the air. Thank you, Hal Computer. And um, love the line. Um, they showed me a word. Yeah. Uh, they sent me a way to teach me how to be sensible, logical, responsible, practical. They showed me a world where I could be so dependable, clinical, intellectual, cynical. Um, let's see. Uh, when I was young, they sent me a way to teach me how to be sensible, logical, responsible, practical. Um there are times when all the world's asleep. The questions run too deep for such a simple man. Please tell me who, who I, I am. am. Well, you're not going to learn that in school. Yeah. Um, I wasn't able to decipher the uh, sounds from the video game. I missed it somehow. Yeah, they're in there somewhere. I, yeah. Um, but it's interesting how what he does is he, okay, he goes to these deep questions. He says they're too deep for me. Well, again, he's talking about when he was 10 years old being sent away to boarding school. <laughs> and what do we know? We learn from games, you know. Uh -huh. um, that's how we learn. They're fun, but they're also teaching tools. Um, but a lot of people, I guess, are getting the feeling with help from COVID that, you know, the questions are running a little too deep right now. Yeah. So we can um, run away from them. Um, or we can um, dive into them. Face them. Dive into yeah. them. Yeah. And we're going to get in a little bit with our special guest, Gloria DiPietro, who's written a book called A Soul's Journey, uh, the story of traveling through time to find the truth. Um, uh, interesting woman, good friend, um, who has become very adept at uh, what's called past life regression. Mm. And um, anyone who's done self-hypnosis, anyone who's done uh, visualization work, meditation, it's all in the same field. Um, it's a meditative state where we access information not normally it's it comes from our brain uh or maybe through our brain i should say uh -huh. um because anyone who doesn't feel there are higher forms of intelligence than human are a little too narcissistic <laughs> but um we may not know mm. what they are but right. we know that you know to think that let's put it this way it would be pretty depressing if it turned out that human intelligence was the highest form of intelligence in the universe okay that's not a put down that's just a reality check, uh -huh. um, you know, because we have to do better. So we have to assume there's some other species doing better. But, um, <laughs> um, you know, it's the questions run too deep. Well, that's maybe why we're here. Yeah. Uh, and um, our educational system, which tries hard, but is stuck in, you know, a very... A place where the, the the key is you want to they want us to be dependable, yeah, and absolutely dependable to what? To dependable to our true nature, to mm. our 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 soul's reach? No, no, no. To follow the rules of the system mm -hmm. and not make waves, right? And yet, if corporations didn't make waves, we'd have no World Wide Web. That's true. Uh, so at any rate, when we come back, speaking of the World Wide Web, we're going to talk about something called open source programming. Uh, a, the guy who used to fix my computer became a good friend. Used the term for, the, for about 10 years ago. It was the first time I heard the, the, the term open source. Ah. Um, 
because I'm not into technical stuff. Uh, it's hugely important from a philosophical, psychological standpoint, as well as from a technical standpoint. So we'll get to an article in Wired Magazine on open source programming and why it's important when we come back. All right. What is that? That's called Life is a Rock with the Radio Rolled Me. <laughs> Band name uh, called Reunion. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Any song with cereal mentioned, you know, <laughs> is worth paying attention to, right? Yeah, you bet. Hey, this is the Woodstock Roundtable. Doug Grunthe, your host, yeah. co-hosting Ron Van Warmer. And uh, our special guest in the second hour will be Gloria DiPietro, who's written a fascinating book called The Soul's Journey, The Story of Traveling Through Time to Find the Truth. We'll talk about past life regressions. Mm. Um trips that she's taken to her past lives and she took me on one yeah. so we'll talk a little bit about that um and anyone who's done as i said anyone who's, done, who's familiar with self-hypnosis or hypnotherapy m- meditation uh dream work they're all based on the same principle which is slowing down the brain waves to what's called an alpha state and accessing deeper levels of information that aren't available to us when we're in our typical beta waking state which is great for being alert and taking care of business, but blinds us or deafens us to the deeper, you know, levels of insight mm. that um, are available. So we'll get to talk about that. We'll have music from the Sultan of Sonic's old Gus Mancini, a little street philosophy from Patrick Carlin. Yeah. Uh, but we're talking about the World Wide Web and how the World Wide Web was created is a fascinating and important story. Because it <clears throat> was literally invented by one person, um, which is rare. Most big technological change are huge collaborative efforts. Um, but Tim Berners-Lee was working at CERN, fascinating place. That's the underground particle collider that is deep underground, um, mostly in Switzerland, because under the border into France. And back in the early 90s, uh, he was working there, and he was frustrated by the fact that while computers were getting more advanced, they couldn't talk to each other. Mm. And CERN was an international consortium, so you had people from all different countries, and their computers couldn't talk to each yeah. other. He said, that's ridiculous. <laughs> so he created code, and through trial and error, uh, came up with basically the the infrastructure for what we now know as the World Wide Web. And just from in terms of nomenclature, <clears throat> we usually refer to it as the internet. The internet refers to the 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 actual computers that are connected. Right. The World Wide Web <clears throat> is what's created from all those specific computers connecting. So I'll, that's how I think of it. Um, and it really is a global brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, sim- yeah. not just symbolically because um, 
Computers are an extension of our brain. If you don't think so, just think about how you feel when you leave home and you realize you forgot your cell phone. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> and these brains are all connected. And it's wreaking havoc, fake news, chaotic stuff coming at us all the time. But it's also creating the potential for a true renaissance because never before has the have people around the world been so intimately and closely connected. It's going to take us some time to figure out how to make that work without making ourselves crazy. But why is open source so important? Well, Tim Berners-Lee, it's amazing enough that he was technologically brilliant enough to create the protocols that we now know as the Internet or the World Wide Web. But while he was the first to do it, there were other people who would have come up with it. Right. But then he did something that is almost inhuman or transhuman. <laughs> this is a smart guy. Yeah. He knew what he had. He knew that he, if he monetized it, he could become one of the richest people in the world. Mm-hmm. So he could have gone to attorneys, patent attorneys, gotten a patent on it so nobody could steal it, and then start to market it. He didn't. He believed that this needed to be offered to everyone mm -hmm. and not monopolized. And that's the difference between open source and non-open source. Um, if you, and listen, Microsoft and Apple and Google create brilliant products. Mm -hmm. I, I tend towards Google. Um, and I'm very pleased with their technology. Um, but they're a corporation whose main purpose is profit. Mm -hmm. And they're going to charge you. They're going to take some blood from you uh, at every turn. They can. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's how capitalism works, one might say. Okay, fair enough. But Tim Berners-Lee had a different idea. Um, he said, you know what, I'll make my money, but I'm not going to monetize this thing. And he created what's called open source, meaning open source means anybody can use the technology and anybody can go in and try to improve it. Right. You can add to it. Yeah. The greatest, one of the simplest ways to understand it is Wikipedia, which I oh. don't take for granted. I can, when they ask for money, I give it to them. Uh -huh. Because think about it. Wik, how often do I use Wikipedia? Every day. Yeah. It's free. <laughs> I know. It's crazy, isn't it? And it's open, it's literally open source in that they, yeah, they have a very small editorial staff that monitors it to eliminate crazy stuff. But the articles are written by people and anyone can go in within reason, they have right, and change the article. Yeah. Try to improve it. And you would think, wait a minute, you can't do that. It's going to end up as a, either a chaotic mess or the greedy people are going to get in there and monopolize it. Hasn't happened. No, it hasn't. It, it seems to work. There's an article about my brother, Randy Van Warmer, in Wikipedia, and it was wrong. And I fixed it. There you go. <laughs> Perfect example. Yeah. Um, 
Is it perfect? No. Does it work? Absolutely. Yeah. So Tim Berners-Lee literally single-handedly invents the protocols for the Internet and says, but I'm going to make it open source. That's it. I don't believe in heroes anymore, but if you're going to call someone a hero, <laughs> that's the guy. Yeah. By the way, he's doing just fine. Oh, yeah. You know, he got hired by MIT's, you know, lab and um, he's doing very well. But not only a brilliant guy, but a magnificent, a, a munificent guy. Mm. So article in Wired Magazine called Overclocked, the open source movement runs on the heroic efforts of not enough coders doing too much work. They need help. Hmm. I brought in a different... I have need reading glasses for the first time, and these are, these are not working well. But anyway... <laughs> Your best ones. Um, <clears throat> while you're surfing the web, you ought to thank Jacob Thornton for making it so pretty. He's a programmer who, along with a web designer, Mark Otto, created Bootstrap, free software that the pros use to make their sites look spiffy. If you've ever noticed that a lot of websites have the same big chunky buttons or the same clean forms, that's likely because an estimated one-fifth of all websites on the planet use Bootstrap. Huh. One reason for its spread is that Thornton and Otto made Bootstrap open source. Anyone can use it without permission. Anyone can tweak it and improve it. Thornton didn't get a salary for making Bootstrap. When he and Otto first released it in 2010, they had day jobs working for Twitter. But both were propelled by classic open source motivations. It was a cool challenge. It burnished their reputations. And it felt neat to help people. Plus, <laughs> watching it surge in popularity. Green Day's website used it. So did Barack Obama's White House. Hmm. It was thrilling for them. But open source success, he quickly found, has a dark side. He was inundated. Countless people wrote him in auto every week with bug reports, demands for new features, questions, <laughs> praise. Thornton would finish his day job and spend four or five hours every night frantically working on bootstrap, managing queries, writing new code. He said, I couldn't even grab dinner after work. Um, when the open source concept emerged in the 90s, it was considered a bold new form of communal labor. Digital barn raisings. If you made your code open source, dozens, even hundreds of programmers would chip in to improve it. Many hands would make light work. Everyone would feel ownership. They're talking Quaker here. Yeah, know, right? really. By the way, when was the last Quaker war? <laughs> I, I'm not thrilled with their dress code. Yeah. But I like the fact that they're truly... Not warlike. Yeah. Now, it's true that open source has overall been a wild success. Every startup, when creating its own software, services, or products, relies on open source software from folks like Thornton. Open source web server code. Open source neural net code. But with the exception of some big projects like Linux, the labor involved isn't communal. Most, like Bootstrap, the majority of work lands on a tiny group of people, and they're getting exhausted. Yeah. What's the famous phrase? No good deed goes unpunished. <laughs> um, <clears throat> no one's quite sure what to do about open source burnout, but some think finding money for the coders might help. Programmer Ashley Williams is a member of a team creating open source language, the open source language Rust, 
and they're trying to set up a foundation to support core contributors or get firms to keep contributors on staff. Now, some of the largest open source projects thrive in this fashion. Facebook and Google pay some of their employees to work full-time on open source code. Huh. Now, that's an interesting mix. Yeah. A for-profit corporation says, I'll take some of my money and pay people to do open source. I'm sure that if that open source is really successful, are they going to allow it to stay open source? I'm sure it benefits them in some way. Good marketing, yeah, good and, PR, and they uh, get uh, to use the whatever is developed for free. Yeah, but that's not how corporations usually think. <laughs> They're saying, "Yeah, but now if I can charge other people, I can make a lot more money." But at least, yeah. at least at this point, it seems they're doing some open source. There is something support. about the internet <clears throat> that encourages open source. I mean, it, it, because it was free originally, mm -hmm. and it was really developed by, by hackers and people who were just doing stuff on the, on, on the Internet, which no one else was using. And as they developed more uh, software and more code, more people started finding it attractive to get on. And then it became something that people could monetize. But prior to that, it was just a, a geeky thing. Mm -hmm. And... Um uh, I think a lot of things work that way. You know, people in their garages or basements yeah. or, you know, figuring things out. And then they, some of them become very wealthy entrepreneurs. I remember in the early 80s, my stepsons were on the Internet all the time. And I would watch them and it was just so dull and so boring. There were no pictures. It was nothing. And I just said, this is never going to take off. No one's ever going to use this. What is what, what? Who, who in a mass media, mass market is going to get online with a dial-up modem and, and try and do something? And it was, it was years before you got pictures on the Internet. Yeah, it was typing on a screen. Exactly. And, and, the, and, and with, with, you needed all this code. Yeah. And, you know, you had to type in 84 different strange things to get anything. <laughs> that, yeah, uh, where's this going? Right. And, uh, you know, it, when it became accessible to the mass without having to code, uh, that's when it took off. And anyone who doesn't think that AI has sped up life oh. and that things are, changes happening at speeds never before experienced, in the year 2000, the turning of the millennium, no one knew who Google was. That's right. Yeah. I, you know, I, the phrase I used, uh, used to use was, not in my lifetime. <laughs> and now I, I don't use that phrase at all. Yeah. <laughs> good, good, good thinking. Good thinking. Um, yeah, shift is happening, and it's happening at extremely fast pace. Which is why to promote what we're going to be doing in the second hour, talking with Gloria. Any way we, it should be? Well, I shouldn't say should be. It'd be nice if it's every day. But any way that we can slow down the brain waves, get off the. Now, listen, I'm a huge fan of that digital screen because to me. It's the Library of Alexandria at our fingertips. Mm -hmm. So I'll put up with a lot of nonsense to access that. Yeah. To take advantage of that. At the same time, <clears throat> when we're on the screen, whether we're conscious of it or not, our brains are being forced to work at a speed faster than it's comfortable. Which is why we learn differently on the screen than we learn from the printed page. But as McLuhan taught us in the 60s, 
if you don't understand how TV works, you're not going to educate kids because kids are going to be learning more from TV than from books, mm-hmm. which to some degree, it doesn't mean books go away. Right. But his point was that the brain is getting rewired by electronic technology. And so kids who grew up in the TV age, like us, our, our brains are wired differently than our parents and grandparents were. Who's, mm-hmm. And their parents, who were their brains were primarily wired to learn from print. It doesn't mean that print becomes irrelevant. It just gets surpassed um, in, in terms of use by the new rewiring. Right. And uh, now that this was happening anyway, but COVID has accelerated. Now that so much learning and business is being done virtually, there's another rewiring of the brain. It's not good or bad. It's how we use it. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is where it's going. And um, virtual reality is going to become closer and closer to reality, which is one way symbolically to look at how Trump got elected on a real, on a you know, non-political level. Uh-huh. That a TV reality host with no political experience can get elected president. <laughs> that could not have happened. No. Before the World Wide Web and before computer technology got it as advanced as it was. Um and the next major leader who comes about because of that may be, may be a better source than the, yeah, right. the, than the, the, <laughs> the current president. But um, we're talking about the process, not the content. Right. And um, the process is shifting underneath us. And it, to understand it, it's ironic. To understand life in the faster brain lane, we have to slow down the brain waves to get a bigger picture of it. Mm. And uh, we'll be talking one way of doing that in our second hour. Uh, the project I'll be announcing next week, which will be starting up in January, is specifically about that. Um, because that's where we're at. Yeah. And listen, there's there are times when we just need to stick our heads in the sand and say, <laughs> like in the logical <laughs> song, these questions are too deep. Yeah. Sorry. They're too deep. That's okay. Take a break. Right. But. I think we all need to do these, that. This is the water we're swimming in now. So eventually the head has to come out of the sand. <laughs> yes. Or you suffocate. Exactly. And um, so we'll, you know, this is the fun times we're in. <laughs> um, let's. Uh, since we're not going to be able to open up the Woodstock Roundtable jukebox in our second hour, we're going to be involved in this trip, which is great. Uh, let's do it a little bit now. And um, I picked out, for reasons I'm not sure, but this morning it just came to me, Jeff Beck's Bolero. Now, Jeff Beck did an amazing performance of this. Think about this. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame had a big celebration in 2009. Was that when it opened? Uh, I think it was before that. Was, I think it was before that too. But in 2000, they had a big they had a big celebration, and one of the they invited Jeff Beck. Why not? Uh-huh. And one of his most amazing pieces is Bolero. Now Bolero is a classical piece of music written by Maurice Ravel. First premiered, I think, around 1927, 1928. It's considered one of the most sexy, erotic pieces of music ever written. Uh-huh. One reason, it's a 17-minute piece, the classical version. It starts out with a very light little drumming and very slowly, it takes like 12, 13 minutes for it to start to build. 
but it keeps building with the same rhythmic pattern, right? Uh, the movie 10 famously used it. Yes. Um, and Jeff Beck just took it and just transformed it with an electric guitar and, an, and, a, and a rock band behind him. So I thought we would do is play the last three and a half minutes of the original piece and then go into how Jeff Beck does it. So start if you could start the bolero at around 14 minutes, start Beck at around 20 seconds because he's introduced, you know, he, he comes on stage and he's fooling around for 20 seconds. And uh, we'll go from the, I love when rockers take on classical, uh-huh. uh, create some interesting stuff. moment you realize something is Uh-oh. Truly- there's the there's the uh, commercial part of the world wide web yeah. i love when they interrupt music with a commercial <laughs> thank you so much unbelievable unbelievable they won't let it go through okay they're back <laughs> <laughs> Where did Mr. Beck go?
and gentlemen. All right. God, that's good. <laughs> yes, indeed. The thing is. about Beck, and one reason great musicians are in awe of him, is not just because of his technique, which is extraordinary. He, when you watch him, you can YouTube this, uh, he reminds me more of an artist with a paintbrush yeah. than a guitarist with a pick. Uh-huh. <laughs> the way he plays that thing. It is pretty amazing. Yeah. Anyway, let's, uh, let's go to another amazing uh, force of nature. Patrick Carlin, our favorite street philosopher. Can we get him on board? Oh, yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, there he is. I was enjoying that Ravel strip. You know, all the dancing is like a, a way to get into the boudoir. And I was thinking, you know, rhythm and blues tunes that get the job done in two minutes. Oh, man, they were wonderful back in the late 40s. Well, way back. I mean, man, ah, come on. I love music. And when I was getting ready to come back from Alaska after no chicks for like 15 months, man, they came on with a thing called the Valentino Tango. And here we were listening to all this great stuff. Up, we, you know, we would rotate country tunes with rhythm and blues tunes, and we all got together. We didn't have. We it was a very good brotherhood trip for uh, musical stuff up there in Alaska. And uh, just before I came home, this Valentino tango came out, and I put actually you can do it. You can put sets together that just tell you right to get into the bedroom. Uh, that thing I got out, I made $6 on it this month. I don't want to sound like I'm hustling something, but in Quinn's Bar and Grill, I got a set of tunes in there uh, that uh, little girl uh, Alice in Wonderland plays, uh, and she lights a jasmine joss stick after they just smoked some real nice Oaxacan. And, uh, you know, the bartender, Palahers, you know, the one-eyed dude, man, Dizzy, he knows they're going to the boudoir just off the tunes, and it's great. So uh, I'm all for music doing its thing. And when you said Moonlight uh, this morning, the first thing I wrote down was Moonlight becomes you. It goes with your hair. You certainly know the right thing to wear. I mean, man, that was a road to Morocco, and I was a, a young kid when, uh, when I saw that, and I said, right on, dude. And the logical song, give me a break, man. I love that tripper. I was into that back when it first came out. I had that album, uh, Super Tramp with the, the waitress. I mean, she looks like she's working at the airport in comfortable shoes, you know. That's where the waitresses wind up. They come to be Hollywood to be stars, and they wind up down by LAX working in a diner. And God bless them, I love them, because everybody lives the life that they got, and nobody's above the other. And sometimes if she would have been a star, who would care? And anyway, you take the life you got and you enjoy it. So when they sent me to boarding school, I was cracking up when you <laughs> talked about that because I was sent to boarding school, and uh, they didn't make me logical at all because I was logical in front. I was logical back in first grade. That's why I got sent to boarding school. I mean, I was so logical, I called people what I felt like calling them, and if it was a nun and an SOB, then I wound up in boarding school. And I already knew before I got to boarding school that it's the retaliator who gets punished, never the perpetrator or the signifier. And I made that. I said, well, it's worth it. If i got to kick some kid who's got it coming, good. And I don't care if I become a better person while I'm here on Earth or where I was. I'll tell you one thing about past lives. When that star chick told me and Marlene, Oh, he's an Aries rising. He's a Libra with Aries rising. He must have done something terrible in a past life. 
Well, I'll tell you, man, anything I did terrible to someone in a past life, they had it coming. <laughs> because I don't start stuff. I finish stuff. And uh, that's been my life, and I dig it. And I dig the moon. That's number 18 in the tarot cards. I whipped it out, and it's a pretty card. And it's got a dog and a wolf howling at the moon, man, because they got to follow reflected light through those two towers. And they're not sure they want to do that. They like the real light of the sun, so they're howling. And there's a lobster-looking thing trying to crawl out of the swamp right next to them. <laughs> and it's a heavy-duty card. And i got to tell you, people who talk about humans are the most intelligent, I would hate to get a look at the least intelligent, man. <laughs> You've got wild animals that have a better code of ethics than we have. Are you serious? They don't need to write stuff down. If you do the bad scene in a wolf pack, you're out of there, Jack. You've got to be moving around because they're not great runners. They can't run all night. They do a, a relay race thing and finally bring you down. They know how to stay alive. And look at that coyote. Look at that coyote that they were trying to kill because he was eating a couple of sheep out where they got so many of them they don't know what to do with them there. I think they used to call them Montana Queens or something. But uh, all those sheep running around, and they got mad at this coyote, so they wanted to get this boy, and they tried every trap they had. It was more fun than watching a cartoon. <laughs> and they tried everything on him. And finally they came out with their super-duper trap from these guys who were doing colliding atoms, I guess. They were so intelligent. And the coyote came and ate all the chow and crapped in the trap. <laughs> So there you go, man. I respect what's around. I respect what's there. And I loved that Super Tramp album. They got well, another we do, great we, one we in do there it for too. you, Patrick. Our job, our stranger. Our job. Oh, yeah. Our job. And then they got oh, an album cover that knocked favorite me out. part of the show. I, I trying to stop him from talking. Little wire-looking thing on top of a roof. And Patrick. Pollution is coming down everywhere around him, and the dude oh, is out sunning himself in the L.A. smog, and he says, "Crisis, Patrick, crisis." <laughs> we listen, These are my kind of people, man. I Patrick, so, we uh, got to run, my okay. friend. We got to take our break. But anyway, listen, our job in the morning is to get you fired up, and we obviously we succeeded. So, I'm uh, always fired up, dude. You just threw some gasoline on it. Well, you keep <laughs> yourself fired up, and we'll look forward to catching up with you next week. Best at home, and uh, you stay well. I'll stay happy. <laughs> We're going to take our second break, and uh, uh, God, we just we just killed an hour of radio yeah. time. How'd we do that? Hey. Well, we'll we'll try for another hour, and in our second hour, we get Gus Mancini, the Sultan of Sonic Soul. And our special guest, Gloria DiPietro, who's written A Soul's Journey, the story of traveling through time to find the truth. Fasten your seatbelts.